0: For me personally, I think I feel quite embarrassed after I've shown my emotions. I always feel so much better when I can get something off my chest. Because the voice in my head. You know, you can feel it whispering constantly and then it always gets louder when you least expect it to.
1: The first voice is usually the scared, anxious voice. Oh no, what are we going to do?
0: Shitting my feelings makes me feel relief more than anything. I'm not very good at opening up because I don't like to be
1: vulnerable. Hello and welcome to Pi. In this four-part series, we're going to aim to get to the bottom of why we, as the rational species that we are, think, feel and behave the way that we do. Why? Because better understanding our own thought processes and the thought processes of others has been scientifically proven to be therapeutic and great for our own well being. Joining me as we delve deep into the human psyche is psychologist and co founder of the Positive Group, Dr. Brian Marion. Hello, Brian. Hi, Rick. And Pi, what does it, what does it stand for? This is not a show about my favorite number, is it? <laughs> uh, no, Pi stands for psychologically
0: informed environment. So the idea is that if you improve psychological understanding, it can have a significant benefit for the people in that environment.
1: Great. So each episode, we'll be introducing a different emergent property that we all experience, assessing what it is, how it affects us, and what we can do to adjust it if necessary. So just before we start then, Brian, what exactly are we talking about when we say emergent property? I'm guessing we're talking about things like behavioral traits. Emergent being something that we're putting out there and property being something that manifests in us. Well, I suppose this is a a nod to systems theory or complexity theory. I'm nodding at those so often, Brian.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I can't stop (laughs) nodding at them. (laughs) I think the the, one of the problems perhaps with medicine and psychology is that we look for linear causality. I think it's a human default to look for cause and effect and Mm -hmm. say this explains this. But we're incredibly complex we often can't explain why our mood shifts around because it's influenced by so many different things. So an emergent property is what the complex system is actually delivering into consciousness or into a behavioural output.
1: Okay, so human beings are the complex system in this case and an emergent property like awareness or focus is something that manifests in our brain that has a tangible effect on the way we think, feel and behave. Exactly. So just talk to me, why are we doing this? How can talking about your emotions actually improve your well-being?
0: Well, I think understanding psychological well-being and what impacts on it is important because it's relevant to all of us as as human beings. But let me ask you a question, Rick. How relevant do you think psychological well-being is? What does it influence? What does it have tentacles into for you, your friends, your family?
1: It's tentacles, so to speak, get everywhere my state of mind will affect my physical health. Like if I'm feeling down and I feel like I haven't got any energy, so physical energy, for example. And if I'm not in a great place emotionally, I find it clouds my thinking slightly. So I might not be as sharp as normal. So in my job, being quick is quite important. And if I'm not in a great place, then I will notice that I'm less quick than normal.
0: So it slows you up a bit.
1: Yeah, yeah. It sl- slows up my speed of thought, I suppose. Mm. I'm not making that up, are No, no, no. There's no.
0: very, very good evidence that uh, our mood state impacts on our cognitive function. So mm. concentration, memory, decision-making, executive skills. And why is that then? Well, it's probably because negative emotions, things like stress, anxiety, depression, take up a lot of RAM.
1: And so RAM is our kind of working memory, yeah. right?
0: Yeah. Absolutely. They use up a lot of energy and they distract us. We've only got a limited RAM, so some of it's being hijacked by that mood state, which is then affecting
1: how we think, feel and behave. And what about the physical impact?
0: It's huge. There's a big area of medicine now called psychoneuroimmunology, where you look at the impact of psychological states like stress, anxiety, low mood, And this impacts on a whole range of physical parameters. So it impacts on your physiology, but it also impacts on your health in the here and now, your immune system, wound healing. But it also affects the genesis of a range of illnesses. So things like diabetes, metabolic syndrome, ischemic heart disease are accelerated by low mood and actually decelerated by positive mood. So we've looked at it impacting on cognition and on our physical health, but how does it, in fact, impact on your behavior? How does it affect how you interact with your fellow man and woman?
1: Oh, I think that has a huge effect. And apart from anything else, that's generally how you pick up on other people's emotional state is, is their behavior. That, those are the first, most obvious cues if someone is, is not feeling great.
0: Is there any contagion there? Is there any sort of connection between how you feel and how you make others feel?
1: Yeah, definitely. So if my, you know, my wife or my best friend is anxious, then that definitely impacts on my mood, makes you worry about them. Uh, And so you then end up with a certain amount of anxiety yourself, I suppose.
0: Can you think of anything off the top of your head that your psychological well-being doesn't impact on, doesn't influence? Um, I asked that question the other day and some wit said the weather. But actually, I think it does impact how you perceive the weather.
1: Yeah, I'm sure it does, particularly when you're on holiday and you're kind of keeping a keen eye on the weather because you're just desperately, you've paid your money and you just want to get up over town or whatever. And if you're in a good mood and you wake up and, and it's a bit overcast, it's fine. You're like, it's okay. We'll still have a good, we'll still have a good day. There's plenty of stuff to do and see. And, and then if you're in a slightly bad mood, then I think you look at the weather and go, well, this well, this is, we I mean, might as well go home. This is useless. <laughs> um, so yeah, I think you're right. The wit was wrong. <laughs>
0: I suppose the the, the reason for this program is to highlight that it does impact on everything. So there are risk factors and there are protective factors. If you reduce the risk factors for developing psychological problems and you increase the protective factors, you can start to exert some agency over our emotional shifts, over our mood shifts. One of the problems is that negative mood states are quite sticky and you can get stuck there.
1: Okay, so I guess then if speaking about and understanding the way that we feel really does have this much of an effect and and its tentacles are spreading this far and wide, let's get on with it. My definition of self-awareness is being aware of how I'm feeling.
0: Self-awareness to me, I think, is mainly linked to self-consciousness, which is maybe not the best thing. The notion of knowing who you are, of understanding and appreciating your positives, your negatives, your weaknesses and your
1: strengths. I think good self-awareness means... um, Wait, what do you mean by self-awareness? So in this episode, we're going to be looking at awareness. We're aware of the term awareness, but in psychology terms, what does it mean exactly? This is more around self awareness. It's about becoming
0: aware of how emotions govern and run our patterns of
1: thinking, how we feel, and how we behave. Because our emotions actually are responsible for quite a lot of our decision making, aren't they? Emotions are always first
0: up, Mm -hmm. they have what's called neurological primacy. So the emotional reasoning is always the
1: first voice. You hear. So that's why having this awareness of our emotions is so important because they must affect the way we behave in a pretty big way, right? Well, I I think Daniel Kahneman's probably done the best
0: work on this. He won the Nobel Prize for economics. He's not an economist, he's a psychologist. And what he showed was that 80% of the decisions that economists make are made by their unconscious brain. So he then sort of conceptualized this as system one and system two. System two is your thinking brain, it's your rational brain but it's got very, very small capacity. And he analogizes this, that if it was a cubic foot, your system one, which is your great unconscious, would be the size of the Milky Way.
1: Wow, okay. So in brain terms, our system one absolutely dwarfs our system two.
0: Yep. System one is the fast processor. So it gives you the answer. But system two receives the answer from system one. But system two is unaware that it got the answer from system
1: one but it's also unaware of its unawareness. Right. So System 2 probably thinks it's doing all the hard work. System 2 is like, leave this to me, guys, I've got this. And then in the background, System 1 does all the work, gives it to System 2, and System 2 sort of claims it as its own. Absolutely. So it's sometimes known as the secret author. So were emotions useful to us in decision-making in our evolutionary process then? That's correct. They are survival mechanisms. Take
0: a a classic example. Fear actually activates an area in your midbrain very rapidly called your amygdala, which then shuts down the cortical thinking rational brain and produces a massive physiological response. So you start to get a thumping heart, dry mouth, and you're being primed to either fight or flee. So you have massive physiological changes and that is being driven by emotion and that
1: keeps you in the gene pool. Do you think that emotions get a slightly bad press? We like to think of ourselves as being quite a kind of superior being and emotions don't seem to be in line with that. I think that's absolutely right. I think going back to ancient civilizations, people valued
0: reason and intellect and thought emotions were basic and animal and that we need to focus on the rational, reasonable brain. And I think the Renaissance and
1: the Enlightenment nourish that perception. So in very simple terms then, we have... Demonised our emotions because we fancy ourselves to be rational, logical human beings, and kind of above emotions. But actually, our emotions gave us an evolutionary advantage, and we should really be thanking them, giving them a little pat on the back. Exactly. My inner monologue is just a bully who just kind of um, doesn't give me any encouragement. I think I speak to myself quite harshly.
0: I constantly put myself down and don't think I'm good enough. I'm rubbish, or I'm not very good. Or I'm not attractive enough, or I shouldn't have said a certain thing, or I shouldn't have behaved in a certain way.
1: So I understand how our emotions helped us to stay alive and kind of reach the top of the food chain. But how does that translate to to present day then, Brian? Because I'm not sure I use my... Flight or fight response very much these days. That's true. I think the world's got safer in terms of predators and in terms of
0: physical attack. But I think we still have this vigilant threat circuit. Interestingly, we can activate that threat circuit through Mr. Trump's rhetoric or Brexit and the uncertainty. So the media can actually create threat, but so can we ourselves. We can create threat by imagination, imagining something activates about 80 to 90% of the neural circuitry. So, you know, if I wake up in the night and hear a noise downstairs and I think it's my Labrador, that's a benign thought. uh, And I have a Labrador, so it's not a deluded thought. That thought doesn't make me feel anxious. I get no physiological change and I pull up the duvet and go back to sleep. But if I think it's an intruder, because I watched Psycho before I went to bed, that activates the threat circuit. I've now got a thumping heart, dry mouth, sweaty palms, and I don't pull up the duvet and go back
1: to sleep. Is controlling our emotions easier said than done, though? One of the difficulties is that emotions
0: are always first up. So when I'm going to do a presentation, I might think to myself, oh, my God, uh, I'll dry up. Uh, People will think I'm a plonker. I won't be able to answer the question. I'll trip over the wire from the overhead projector. It's going to be a disaster. Those thoughts... That would be quite funny though, (laughs) if you did. I'm just saying. (laughs) Thank you, Rick. Thank you. It's my nightmare. Um, Then then I think, okay, well, I'm not going to do the presentation. So the danger with fear is it often creates
1: fear avoidance. And what about this phenomenon I think you sometimes see where you almost feel anxious about being anxious or you feel sad about being sad?
0: Yeah, metacognition. What often happens when we get stressed or anxious is it's an unpleasant physical sensation but we also feel overwhelmed it's uncomfortable from a personal point of view i've certainly had experiences when i felt anxious and stressed and historically i can remember getting very upset about that feeling so if somebody gets stressed and they think you shouldn't feel like this i should be able to cope why aren't i coping i'm letting people down i'm pathetic that actually increases their distress about being distressed which then feeds the monster
1: And I suppose as well that if, taking the example of um, being stressed about an exam or something like that, if you're stressed about an exam and then you get stressed about feeling stressed, then you end up in an emotional state that means you probably won't do particularly well in your exams and it actually has a, has a sort of tangible deleterious effect on, on your life. Absolutely. One person who knows all about the effect of mood on behaviour is clinical psychologist and author of the book Mind Over Mood, Dr. Christine Padesky.
2: I practice cognitive behavioral therapy. This is a type of therapy that is really designed to help people learn skills to better manage their moods and make changes in their behavior and their relationships for the better. Moods and emotions in my daily life, if I'm talking to friends and family, I use them interchangeably. In professional settings, emotions are considered uh, bigger things that last a longer time and moods are considered more transient. Emotions have a powerful effect on behavior. So, for example, if we are feeling depressed or in a very low mood, the prime effect on behavior is that we tend to stop doing things. We are more likely to isolate, to socially withdraw, not try new things, and to think, I'm not going to be able to do this, I won't succeed. Anxiety can look a little bit like depression, and that sometimes people hold back from doing things, but it's not because they think they can't succeed. With anxiety, people have fears about danger being too much for them to handle. We've learned there are very specific skills that help with particular moods. So for example, with anxiety, it's really important to approach the things that you're afraid of. So you have a chance to learn that they're not so dangerous or to learn that you can cope with them. But that's not so easy to do unless you first learn skills to help you tolerate anxiety. With depression, it's very helpful to identify and learn to test out your negative thoughts. We talk about a number of types of thoughts in CBT. So, for example, if you're making dinner and you're thinking about certain things. What food do I need? What spices am I going to use? What do I need to put into the cooker first? But while you're having this conscious planned thought, other ideas start popping into your head. Oh, my Lord, I forgot to wash my hair today. I'm going to look a mess at dinner. Oh, I forgot to pick up my dry cleaning. We call these automatic thoughts because you're not planning on thinking about them, but there they are. Now, we all have tens of thousands of automatic thoughts throughout the day. What we're interested in CBT is we're interested in the automatic thoughts that have a direct impact on our mood and behavior. So, for example, the thought about I didn't pick up my dry cleaning may not have any particular effect on your mood or behavior. But the thought I didn't wash my hair, I look a wreck, that thought might begin to make you feel a little bit wobbly or a little bit down, particularly if somebody's coming to dinner that you wanted to make a good impression on. There's a second level of thought, a little bit deeper than the automatic thought that we're also very interested in called underlying assumptions. It turns out that all of us have certain behaviors that we do over and over again, even though they're fairly self-defeating. For one person, it might be they keep getting involved with a person who predictably is gonna treat them badly. For someone else, it might be they get cross and they badger their employees and they'd really like to change that behavior because they see it creates a bad workplace, but they just can't stop themselves they're called underlying because they kind of go beneath the surface, their thoughts we're not really aware of. But we can easily become aware of them by putting the behavior in an if-then sentence. For example, if I say, if my employees are making a mistake, and I get cross with them and set them right, then things will move more smoothly in my office. Now, that's a positive reason for getting cross. It's what I would call your good reasons for doing it. And you can also ask, if I don't get cross with them, then what am I afraid will happen? And people will say things like, if I don't get cross with them, then their behavior will deteriorate and pretty soon our quality will go completely downhill. So it turns out, even when we're doing behaviors that we see are not very adaptive, we usually have these underlying assumptions that convince us that this is the only behavior that will help make the situation better this is the only behavior that will help us get ahead even when that's probably not true
1: so that's how our emotions affect our behavior and the way we feel but what can we do about it this is where emotional literacy comes in. What's a pithy
0: definition of emotional literacy? It's an insight and awareness and understanding of the impact that emotions can have on how we think and how we behave. It allows us to step back to challenge negative automatic thinking. I saw a sign in Sydney the other day where it says literacy is freedom. I think actually emotional literacy is liberating. Because you suddenly start to understand some of what's going on in your head. It's not a panacea. It doesn't mean you can sort it all out. But it's a step on the journey to actually being able to cope with emotional distress. And it's summed up very nicely by the late, great Viktor Frankl in his book, Man's Search for Meaning, where he said, between the stimulus and the response, there is a space. In that space is the power to choose our response." And in our response lies our
1: growth and freedom. Quite sort of um, yodery, in a way, Victor <laughs> Frankl. I like it. So what else did old Viktor Frankl have to say? Well, I think uh, he had a lot to say, actually. He was, a, he was a psychiatrist who
0: tragically ended up in Auschwitz. So he thought to himself, you know, they can beat me, they can torture me, they can kill me. But while I can draw breath, I can decide what I use my mind for. Mm-hmm. He decided to decide to focus on things that were positive. So he would look at an act of kindness between two of the inmates at Auschwitz or he'd notice the sunset or he'd notice a bird hopping across the grass. And by doing this, he used his mind to deal with his emotional distress and he actually taught other inmates how to do this and it was very beneficial and then he took that into his clinical work later. What he demonstrated was three things that are key to resilience, which is cognitive control Commitment and perseverance, and I think you see this in most people who succeed in life, perseverance is a fantastic predictor. Not that it's easy, but you have to persevere. And the other thing is seeing difficulties and problems, and I know this sounds a bit cliched, but as a challenge, life is meant to, you know, throw you an occasional curveball or even as Black Adder said, uh, conspire to crap down your collar. Mm. And if it does, then how are you going to respond to it?
1: And so this is all again related to metacognition and how you normalize, isn't it?
0: Absolutely. And I think normalize is is the really important thing. We often think it's just me. Everyone else is coping. Everyone else is fine. Actually, once you start chatting to people openly, although we don't often do that in our society, Mm. people actually admit they do get anxious. They do get sad. They do get angry and upset. The normalization, I think, is sort of It takes the blame away from the person. They can suddenly feel everyone gets this. It's part of being a human being. That reduces stigma, shame, embarrassment.
1: So it's becoming very clear why improving our emotional literacy is so therapeutic. It's two main reasons, isn't it? It's one, that it allows us to displace blame by making us realise that our behaviour is not our fault. And two, that it helps us to realise... That we all experience these things and that normalises that shame we feel when we get emotional. Yes. The key here is being able to reframe emotions, isn't yeah. it? And so how can people get better at that then? What resilient
0: people often do is it's not that they don't visit Negative mood states, but they have a set of tools and techniques to pull them
1: back out of it a bit quicker. And I think that you and positive group are developing some ways that we can do that, right?
0: Yes. One of the things is that each slice of the pie, and there are four slices in this particular pie, each slice has two tools attached to it, and these are evidence-based tools that if people practice them, there is good evidence that they can be highly protective to our psychological well-being. So the two tools in this section are the emotional barometer. And the inner coach. And the emotional barometer works on getting people to monitor their mood. And you can use this on an app, and it allows you to look at what pushes you into a negative state. We often have specific things that frighten us, whether it's spiders or flying or doing a presentation or social interaction. You can also then become very clear on how you're thinking, feeling, and behaving in those states. And I think this is fundamental to understanding what can pull you back into a more positive state.
1: Can I also start to see patterns as well? So if I'm using this emotional barometer and I'm noting down how I feel at various points in the day, am I going to start to be able to identify the things that are making me feel this way? Absolutely. We've done this with school kids. We've done this with teachers. We've done this in the corporate world.
0: What's fascinating, I mean, with the school children, we've got 45,000 entries now. And you can start to see what upsets kids and teachers uh, and bankers. And what you can start to identify is what pushes them into a negative mood state. By monitoring their mood, they become much more aware of that system one. And that insight into that emotional literacy is the very first step to
1: developing emotional regulation. Any other tools for me, Brian?
0: (laughs) And the other tool in this section is the inner coach, which is like a second opinion. So capturing negative thinking, saying, "Okay, well, these are thoughts, they're not facts and then stepping away from it and thinking, okay, well, what would I be saying to a friend? And they tend to be very different because one's coming from the emotional circuit and one's coming from the prefrontal cortex and the rational brain. Mm -hmm. So it's like a counsel for the defense. It's like a wise friend who says, okay, that's what you're thinking emotionally. Let's have another look at this. And it becomes a process which, if you practice, actually allows you to regulate the emotions very effectively. My inner coach would be my boss. I always try to think, how would my boss react in this situation? How would he view it? Because
1: he's a very, very positive person if i was going to choose someone for my inner coach it would have to be someone i respect so probably paul mccartney because um well i respect him a lot but also i I find his gentle Liverpudlian twang very uh (laughs) very calming and i think he'd be a kind of good person to get advice from and you know sit in a big armchair and, and have a whiskey and just talk it out
0: so my inner coach is my mum. <laughs> like she stresses out, and like things do get to her, but she just loves her family and her friends, and like has such a good idea of like how to make things okay. So for example, if I feel like oh no, I shouldn't apply for this job, I just have my mum's voice in my head be like, but just go for it. What have you got to lose?
1: It would probably be The Rock. I guess I'd pick The Rock because he seems to exude positivity and sort of spirit and that kind of motivational energy that anyone can go from, you know, a broke football player with $7 in their pocket to the biggest movie star in the world by laying the smackdown on everybody. You can get more information about both of these tools by visiting positivegroup.org. This episode of Pyre was brought to you by Positive Group and Radio Wolfgang. It was presented by Merrick Edwards with Dr. Brian Marion and featured Dr. Christine Podeski. It was produced by L. Scott and the executive producer was Harry Watson. The Positive Group worked with organisations including schools and universities as well as supporting parents and individuals to improve their skills in building and sustaining psychological wellbeing. If you want to find out more about the work of Positive, go to positivegroup.org.